You are listening to the Women of Wonder podcast, where we want to see sisters soar. We hope that you are inspired by this message. I would like to invite you guys to think about how a piece of classical music is arranged. So I, like many American-born Chinese, I actually learned the piano because I had piano's growing up. And I was trained classically, but I no longer play very well at all. Although I love the piano. I love the cello more, but I love the piano. And when you think about a piece of classical music, sometimes there are movements, right? A similar theme kind of threads through every movement, but each movement is distinct. So tonight, we are going to spend a lot of time on three verses in scripture in Luke chapter two. And we're going to look at three movements. And if you can just kind of keep that that metaphor in your mind of a piece of music, um, that has landed in a special place uh, for me. We're going to look at Anna from Luke chapter two person. Who, who was she? We are going to consider her her life in a specific time and place, in a specific context. And then we're going to move slowly towards understanding what was her single-hearted devotion to the Lord. And then what is her prophetic witness? And how does it connect to our own lives? So after each movement, we're going to pause and kind of process a little bit. So let's look at scripture together. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 80. She did not leave the temple grounds serving night and day with fasts and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak about him to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So who was Anna? In sociology, there's a term called social location. And an individual's social location is often defined as a combination of factors that include their gender, their race and ethnicity, their class, their age, ability, religion, sexual orientation, and geographic location. And social location makes it so that each individual, um, it's that social location is particular to each individual. So how each person experiences um, their their life uh, differs because any combination, any any one of these aspects of identity can affect a person's social location. No two individuals are alike. So tonight in our first movement, we're going to spend time really looking deeply at Anna's social location, at least some aspects of it. First of all, Anna. Her name is Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And Anna, the name Anna, or as some translations render it, could actually be Hannah. And if you all are familiar with the Old Testament, there is someone who was named Hannah, who was very famous in the Old Testament. 
she was the mother of Samuel. She presents son as a boy, um, offered his life to the Lord and, um, and, and left him with a priest in the temple to, um, to grow up there, to serve as a prophet for Israel. So just as Samuel was a very important prophet in Israel, Anna is someone who appears at the presentation of Jesus at the temple. And so it could be that her name, Anna, who might have also been Hannah, was a reminder of the Hannah of the Old Testament, uh, kind of like a replay of the events of the life of Samuel in the life of Jesus, who Jesus is the new Samuel. He is, he is the ultimate Messiah and prophet that will lead Israel. So there's Anna, there's her name. But she was also a daughter of a man called Phanuel or Phanuel. And we don't really see his name anywhere else in scripture. It's only mentioned once. And the name Phanuel means the face of God. It's actually very significant that Anna's father is mentioned. His name is mentioned and not her husband's name. Uh, that's only occurred a handful of times in the New Testament. So it could be that she saw the face of God in her earthly father. I mean, that, that itself is a beautiful blessing. Um, it could be that she um, is seeing the face of God in the baby Jesus, whom she's recognizing as God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, uh, scripture says that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So in Jesus, we can see God. No one has ever seen the face of God, but Jesus is the face of God that, um, that some people have seen, and Anna is one of those people. But we also know that she's from the tribe of Asher. So what is significant about the tribe of Asher? Well, the tribe of Asher was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that there were prophecies over the tribe of Asher. So Jacob prophesied over Asher. J Jacob was his father. Moses blessed the 12 tribes of Israel before he died. And actually in Deuteronomy chapter 33, there is uh, Moses' blessing on the tribe of Asher says that uh, according to your days, so will your leisurely walk or your strength be. And there are indications here in scripture that Anna is pretty advanced in years. But she isn't deteriorating in her hearing, her sight, her movement. I mean, here she is. She's walking towards the baby Jesus. But especially, she is not at all weak spiritually. Here is a woman who is full of life and energy. And all few people in the New Testament are ever listed with their tribes. Jesus was one of them. Paul was another, or Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. And then Barnabas, he was a Levite. So we see that Asher, so 
we see that Anna is given great, um, there's, there's a great deal of history, even in the first few words of the very first verse that is about her. And lastly, you know, about the tribe of Asher, she, the tribe of Asher was, was one of the 10 tribes in Northern Israel that were, that was conquered by Assyria. And Asher became known as one of the lost tribes. But with Jesus's birth, there's an ushering in of the kingdom of redemption that probably is, it, it, it is uh, not a premonition, but like a advent, a beginning of the scattered people of Israel being brought back together. And in other words, we are also the church of God scattered, but being brought, um, brought into his kingdom. She had been married for seven years. That's what we know in scripture. She had known love and she had known the protection and the vision of an earthly husband. And actually, we're not really clear what age she was when she had been married. We know that she was widowed after seven years. And it could be that she was 84 at the time that we meet her here in Luke chapter 2. Um, which is possible, or could it be that she was widow? She was married at age fourteen, which was a typical age of marriage at that time. Married for seven years, so widowed at age twenty-one, and then lived another eighty-four years. And at this point that we meet her, she's actually one hundred and five years old. So some scholars have have questioned that and wondered that. So we don't know. However. 84 is a very particular number. So 84 is seven times 12. And both seven and 12 are important numbers in scripture. Seven is the number of creation. The completion of creation took place over seven days. Well, actually over six and the seventh day, God rested. 12 is the number of tribes of Israel, right? So both seven and 12 represent fullness, completion, perfection. Seven times 12 is 84. 84 is the fullness of time. And what is this fullness of time? It's that Christ has come. Christ has come. He's our Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for all this time. And so even Anna's age, even as Luke records her age, there is such a, there's richness in what is being expressed in terms of who she is. And significantly, you know, she is here. She appears uh, right on the heels of Simeon, who offers a prophecy. He prophesies over Christ. And Simeon actually has, I think, 11 verses. And Anna has three. But what that means is not, it's, this is not about who has more or less. Simeon prophesied over Christ, but Anna was actually called a prophetess. It's them together that offers something very important for us to consider. Um, it's, it's the two of them together showing up. And they are part of a miraculous group of people who get to show up around the birth of Christ and his presentation. So Anna was widowed. 
And I want to spend a little bit of time on what this means. You know, in the Old Testament, widows were often mentioned with pens. These are just a few references. A widow is someone who was acquainted with love. I mean, presumably. And she's been acquainted with grief over the death of her husband because a widow is someone whose husband has died. And in the Old Testament, they were so often mentioned alongside orphans. And we wonder why. Why was that? You know, widows like orphans in that day were, uh, they, they had lost their protection. They had lost their provision. They often had no livelihood, no way to make a living, no way to work. They couldn't take care of themselves. They were very vulnerable. When they grew old, if they did not have children, there wasn't anyone to care for them. If they got sick, how would they pay the medical bills? You know, Naomi and Ruth and Orpah in the Old Testament, they were widows. Abigail in the Old Testament was a widow. But Gail and Judith in the New Testament, who are both widows, um, were actually kind of like wealthy. Uh, so they were a little bit different. But most widows were vulnerable, were uh, weak, and God had a special place in it for them. In the New Testament, in Jesus's life, we see quite a lot about how he treats widows. He raised the only son of a widow of name in Luke 7, uh, the son that had died. Uh, he denounces, he, he rebukes the Pharisees for preying on widows and taking their money. He praises the poor widow who only offers, who, who gave all that she had. It was two mites. It was like two pennies. But he praises her in relation to the rich people who come by, giving a little bit of all that they had. So Jesus shows the heart of God towards widows when he walked on this earth. And later on, we actually see in the early church how widows, that their situation came up again. They were being mistreated. And the people of God uh, noticed it and moved towards them. You know, it's pretty amazing that Anna is a widow. She's present at the of Jesus. She's one of the most vulnerable members of society, a person that would have been marginalized and probably looked down upon in that day. There was a lot of wondering about why people suffer. And often there was an attribution to sin, like, oh, you must have done something. Or maybe your parents did something. Yeah, and actually, I've continued to encounter that in present day situations, that, that misconception of how suffering happens. It's very significant that Anna is a widow. And yet she gets to be there at the birth of Christ. So we encounter Anna as a person first. She is a person. She is she was flesh and blood. She had vulnerabilities and, um, and she 
lived in a specific time and place in history. So let's bear that in mind because that's our, that's our first movement. But as we move into the second movement, we're not gonna just leave that behind. We're actually moving, you know, when you think about a classical piece of music, um, the second movement can be very different from the first one, but it always contains the themes of the entire piece. And as we consider the second movement where we're gonna spend time unpacking Anna's single-hearted devotion, uh, we're going to consider what that actually means. You know, her whole life orientation really shifted in a significant way when she was widowed. I mean, how, how could it not have shifted? Her whole life changed when her husband died. But I'm speculating that for some of us, we think, oh, single-hearted devotion. This started like after she became a widow, right? Because we know her for 84 years and this She's, she's, she's fasting night and day. But I speculate that her single-hearted devotion began before she was widowed, when she was married, before she was married, when she was single. Maybe her single-hearted devotion came out of a life lived with an earthly father in whom she saw the face of God. Um, so we, we don't know, but I do believe that her single-hearted devotion didn't just start when she became a widow. There was something in her life that had been building and building, being formed long before the suffering that at least we know about that she experienced through the death of her husband. But her single heart devotion probably expressed itself in a different way um, in widowhood. And we see here that she did not leave the temple grounds, so the area around the temple. She served night and day with fasts and prayers. So what exactly is fasting and praying? Many of us know that fasting is a spiritual practice that includes emptying ourselves, withholding eating or food, um, confession. In the emptiness, we're listening to God. We are hungry physically and then connecting with our spiritual hunger. And prayer, prayer is, is, so, is, is such a big topic, but prayer is longing, prayer is conversation, prayer is praise and confession and asking. So what is the context that Anna is in these days? Her context is that there has been silence from God for a long time. There have been no prophets in the land. Instead, um, there's been the occupation, the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. Israel is in bondage. And the true Israel uh, are longing and waiting for a Messiah, for the anointed one, for a savior, a deliverer. They're longing and they're waiting. And Anna is one of them. She's longing, she's waiting. She is spending her days, many, many days, night and day, devoted to waiting, to fasting, to praying, to looking. Um, I don't know about you guys, but this is a woman who has gone so deep in her 
spiritual life, um, training her heart, her body, her mind through practices that allow her life to be formed by God in a very specific way. You know, Dallas Willard once uh, drew a distinction between discipleship and spiritual formation. That discipleship, uh, he, he says, are practices that allow for spiritual formation to happen. And here, Anna, we see her practices. And I think a lot of people saw her practices, her fasting and praying, night and day, never leaving the temple grounds. But her spiritual formation was what God was doing in her, working deeply, shaping her life and heart in a, in a specific way. So I wonder if you've ever been so devoted to something that it's really occupied a lot of your mind space, your thoughts, your heart, maybe something you're very passionate about. And, you know, we each are part of this glorious body of Christ that has different giftings. And we together, collectively, reflect his glory on earth and his kingdom on earth. Frederick Buchner, he talks about the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And I do love what he writes there because we talk about calling a lot and the, the place of the deep gladness and the world's deep hunger. I see that convergence in Anna's life. I don't know exactly what her deepest gladness was. All I can infer is from what I can see of her life that she had a deep joy and gladness in approaching the Lord and being single-heartedly devoted to him um, in a specific way in her time and place in history. And the world's deep hunger for a Messiah and a savior is exactly what she was crying out for and longing for, believing in the fulfillment of the promises of the prophets. Her heart orientation, it was, it was such a posture of leaning into and towards Christ that she became prepared for what would, what would come in the moment that we meet her later on. In fact, we know this term being married to Christ as meaning something. Um, in fact, we are called the bride of Christ in different places in scripture. Marriage between a husband and wife in Ephesians is often, it is, is a representation of the marriage relationship between Christ and the church, which is us, the bride. We are being prepared. And again, I would say that she was married to Christ, uh, devoted to him as a wife, is devoted to a husband, both as a married woman before she was married and then as a widow when she was single again. She enjoyed the presence and the attunement, the protection and the provision of her husband. It actually, in Chinese, there is a term that, and I think there is an equivalent in English. It is called a fu qi xiang, which describes how the longer you get married, the longer you're married to somebody, the more you start to look like each other. Um, spouses looking like each other after a long time. And I wonder if we can hold that for a moment as we wait to see what happens with Anna. Um, in her single-hearted devotion, how was her life being shaped and transformed over all these years? In our third movement and final, we see that Anna at that very moment came up 
and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak about him to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. At that very moment, she, after 84 or more years of waiting and praying and fasting and longing, um, she was ready for this moment. She recognized Jesus. Her ears had been alert to what was going on. And it was at this very moment that we see her prophetic witness. She was one of the first to recognize the Messiah in the form of a tiny infant in a very busy place. I mean, that's a big wow. Um, wow is Anna is part of a team of people, right? Composed of both men and women, um, shepherds and wise men who came from far away and they all came and she and Simeon came to bear witness, to point to the truth and the life. And she was someone who was seen as with shame, who was marginalized in her society. So, you know, sometimes we focus in on these movements or on these, sorry, these moments like as if it's the climax of the story, you know, the music swells and there's this really dramatic thing that happens. The audience, we hold our breath. And, you know, sometimes we take these moments as if there's some kind of reward for obedience, um, as if our faith, our journeys are transactional in some way, or that somehow this moment is it's an act acquisition. It's a sign of like, I've made it somewhere. I've done something good. So I'm being rewarded. Um, that is not what we see happening here. Here in Anna's life, we actually see a life that was lived in a certain way um, that culminated in a moment. Um, but I would suspect that Anna was witnessing all the time through her fasting and prayer. Um, that her life itself, every moment of those 84 or more years, was a sign to Israel. And, um, and then there was this moment. And, you know, these at this very moment, points in our lives are really important. It's those moments where we, we get to see God at work. She sees him. She begins to give thanks, right? She points to him. And then she brings more people to gather in and to join and to rejoice together, those who are looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Uh, you know, Psalm 3320, I think, really exemplifies Anna's prophetic witness throughout her life. And this word in the original language, uh, our, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. And our shield help is the word that is Ezra. Um, it is the word that God calls women when he created them in Genesis, created us. Um, and this strong help, the suitable helper um, for man is Anna, right alongside Simeon, bearing witness at the presentation of Jesus at the temple. Um, there is a beautiful mutuality in this prophetic witness.
it's uh, they they mirror one another. Both men and women mutually bearing witness together of redemption. Significantly, they are both older adults. Both Simeon and Anna are advanced in years. Um, and I think that, you know, I believe that there is a restoration and a redemption that is being pointed to in this very moment of the relationship between men and women, that there is a healing, there is a reversing the curse that was in Genesis 3 um, that caused a lot of dissonance um, and brokenness in the way that we relate between sexes and genders. So there, what are, what are these moments? What is this prophetic witness? You know, so what are these very moments in your life? You know, at, maybe there are ones that you've had. Maybe there are ones that you would like to have. Um, maybe they, are, they have happened that you haven't had a chance to really recognize that, you know, but I believe that those at that very moment moments are all over our lives as followers of Jesus. I don't think they're relegated to a special few. We hope that you enjoyed this teaching. We are a community that walks alongside women to uncover and affirm their calling through prayer, teaching, and celebration. Visit womenofwonder.us to learn more.